Welcome everyone to the first episode of the Rochester Public Power Hour. You just heard Strawberry Smoothie written and performed by Ludwig and the music was provided by Vivid Pop Music which you can find at vividpopmusic.com. My name is Mohini and I'm Amanda and we're part of the Rochester for Energy Democracy campaign of Metro Justice. On the Rochester Public Power Hour, we will share updates on our local movement for energy democracy, interview guests organizing movements for energy democracy across the country, and answer questions submitted by you, our audience. We hope that through these conversations, we illustrate the global scale of movements fighting for a more just and sustainable energy system. We also hope to learn from these movements so that our efforts in Rochester can be stronger. Before Amanda tells you what our local campaign is all about, I'd like to share a bit about who Metro Justice is. Metro Justice was founded in 1965 as a grassroots, member-funded, and member-driven organization to fight for racial, social, and economic justice. We believe that for change to last, it must completely transform who has structural power in our society, and that mass social movements are essential to achieving that transformation. That is why we have spent the last 55 years organizing movements that allow everyday people to have a direct say in decisions that impact their lives. We have supported tenant unions, organized worker unions, continue to organize for universal health care, and most recently are bringing people together to replace Rochester Gas and Electric with a cooperatively owned public utility. I'll pass it off to Amanda to share more about that. Now that Mohini has brought you up to speed on Metro Justice, I'd like to give you some background on the campaign being addressed by this podcast, Rochester for Energy Democracy, or RED for short. RED was created in reaction to the climate crisis that has and will continue to result in increased extreme weather, sea level rise, and mass extinction. These and other ongoing effects disproportionately harm people of color, indigenous people, and poor people. Our current energy system is dominated by investor-owned corporations who make billions of dollars off of our need for heat and electricity. Furthermore, because they are beholden to their stakeholders, they make decisions based on making profit instead of what is best for humankind. This means they continue to invest in coal and oil and refuse to build infrastructure for clean energy. The system needs to change, and it needs to change now. The way we make our energy system more just is to replace investor-owned for-profit companies with public, not-for-profit, community-operated utilities. This way, we can have a say in what our rates are and make sure that they're fair and affordable for everyone. We will also be able to decide what kind of energy powers our homes and thus lead a transition to green energy to halt the climate crisis. In order for this transition to be just, we must look to workers, communities of color, indigenous communities, and poor communities for leadership in creating a new system that is just and sustainable. We were on the verge of publicly launching our public power campaign here in Rochester with a march and rally when COVID-19 struck. Our immediate efforts pivoted to organizing a utilities strike to call for utility bill cancellation from the start of the pandemic, a mandatory moratorium on shutoffs for two years, and taxation of the rich to fund recovery efforts. People should be able to rebuild their lives after a public health crisis without worrying about keeping the power on in their homes. This also made us think about how if we had a public utility that looked to the needs of the people, 
we wouldn't have to strike to demand these measures, they would already have happened. And so we found a distanced way to bring you information about public power in hopes that when we next enter a crisis like this, we will have a utility that is worried about supporting the community it serves rather than continuing to worry about maintaining millions of dollars in profits for its investors. This is a big topic, and in future episodes, we will go over the process to create a public utility, the four principles that make our vision democratic, and how we plan to take action to win. Also on the Rochester Public Power Hour, we will be interviewing guests who operate public utilities or are working toward municipalization of the energy sector. We've got lots of questions for them, and we hope that these conversations bring up lots of thoughts for you. Reach out with your questions by emailing rockpublicpowerhour at metrojustice.org or tweeting us at metrojustice and adding the hashtag rockpublicpowerhour. I'm super excited to introduce our first ever guest on the show, Denise Young. For decades, Denise has been a dedicated, fierce, and inspiring organizer for workers' power at work and in their communities. She worked for the Education and Organizing Department of the local Public Employees Federation for 17 years, has been the organizing director of 1199 Service Employees International United, where she also worked for 14 years, has served as an elected president of Metro Justice, and is a mentor to many of us. In addition to her work with unions, Denise also was a leader of the New York State People's Power Coalition, or PPC for short, back in the 1970s. Her experience with this earlier statewide effort for public utilities will be the focus of our conversation today. Welcome, Denise, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, Mohini for that very gracious introduction. Oh, absolutely. So to start broadly, can you tell us a little bit about what the People's Power Coalition was and what were its goals? The PPC came together as a statewide organization, as you mentioned, in, in the 70s. The period of time had been one of increasing awareness of the injustice of how gas, electricity, other resources that people need needed and continue to need were so inequitably distributed. This was not long after massive lines at gas stations, people waiting to get gasoline, being short on home fuel deliveries, electric rates increased every year in the 1970s. So there was, there was this background of concern and the project originally kind of took shape because we heard about the development of a public power district in Messina and few of us decided to take a road trip up and see what was going on up in the North Country. From that wonderful firsthand observation of a group of interested and committed activists, we got the idea that, huh, you know, we could take this project and see what we can do in terms of building statewide organization in different locales. We held a conference uh, under the auspices of the Human Affairs Program at that time at Cornell. 
brought together people, obviously after a tremendous amount of groundwork and reaching out and discovering who was doing this work in different places around the state and launched the People's Power Coalition at that time. It was a very exciting and hopeful period of time for us. Certainly. I think it's interesting that, you know, hearing of a public utility in Messina inspired the People's Power Coalition uh, back in the 1970s, whereas over here, the first inspiration we had to try and have a public utility in Rochester with our red campaign came from the fact that Fairport Electric, our suburban neighbor, also has a municipal electric authority. So, you know, why can't Rochester? In addition to, you know, the oil crisis that you mentioned, as well as learning about the utility in Messina, last time we talked, you also mentioned a rather horrific incident in Schenectady, too, that also had people riled up against private utilities. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, utilities did not have, and and we would like to think that this is a result of work by activists and their organizations around the state, but utilities could shut off for non-payment in the most devastating of winter conditions. And older man froze to death in his home in Schenectady, New York, because of a utility shutoff. And the impact of that event really was so meaningful in a sense. We, we felt like there had to be some way for this to not have been a death in vain and used that opportunity to really talk about the inequity of these major, major corporations, investor-owned utilities and the power that they have over working people's lives. So we wanted to fight back against that and ultimately build public power under democratically controlled auspices. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a lot of us know that Rochester Gas and Electric, our utility here in Rochester, continues to practice illegal winter shutoffs. In fact, a couple winters ago, a bunch of apartments not having heat in the dead of winter was the catalyst for tenant organizing in Rochester as well. How did the PPC seek to address those issues? What were some of its main principles? One was to create a lifeline rate structure addressing the very immediate needs. As I mentioned, utility bills were just continuing to increase constantly. Lifeline rates would mean that every utility customer would be entitled to a basic amount of gas and electricity, which would provide for their needs at a standard and very low cost. And that the rate structure would be built so that the more electricity or gas that was utilized, the more you would pay which was the exact opposite of how rates were structured and continue to be structured. So that the very large quantities of electricity, let's stay with electricity, that are consumed 
by corporate or industrial entities are priced at a much smaller percentage than the electricity that we are charged as consumers in our homes and apartments. That just seemed totally unfair. And we saw it through intervention in rate hearings, work before the Public Service Commission to put forward a different idea and to lobby for that. Second idea was that nuclear power needed to be limited, if not eliminated. And a lot of activity went into the no nukes campaign. Three Mile Island had come close to severe consequences, potential meltdown, which thankfully was, was averted, but it heightened people's awareness. And in our own backyard here in upstate New York, Rochester Gas and Electric was proposing the construction of the Sterling nuclear power plant on Lake Ontario. That was an objective, obviously really close to people here, and a major initiative developed to halt the construction of that plant. That led to a desire to really broaden and encompass other forms of alternative energy to make sure that there was an argument for, well, if you're going to shut down nukes, then how do people get their power? So our critique broadened into the construction of wind, solar, geothermal, biomass, and developed a particular interest in making sure that the resources of the power authority of the state of New York were in fact equitably distributed. The kind of crowning achievement, if you will, in our vision of how things needed to change was the creation of public power districts or municipal power. We did a bunch of research, knew that there were 49, I believe, public power locations in, this, in New York State at that time and developed relationships with some of the leadership in public power entities around New York State and advocates for public power, not only in our state, but nationally as, as well. There was another aspect to your goals with the public power district, which was how they should be governed and what democratic governance really looks like. Could you elaborate on the governance structure you were proposing at the time? Yeah, this, this varied in the, in the sense that some folks had slightly different visions, but the essential piece of this was that the public power districts needed to be under community control, that there needed to be elected boards of folks who would decide how resources should be utilized, to what ends. And this gave us the opportunity to really talk with folks on a very concrete level about who makes decisions, how are those decisions made, and for whose benefit. So 
the process of getting to that point is long and hard and sometimes tricky, but the rewards are, are terrific. Exactly. And, and that's our hope now, too, is that, you know, big visionary change is so necessary, but also harder. So we're very excited to be able to learn from the People's Power Coalition of the past as we try to move this work forward today. How was the People's Power Coalition structured statewide? Well, we had chapters in a number of regions throughout the state, Long Island, New York City, Hudson Valley, the North Country, the Finger Lakes region, Western New York, and the Southern Tier. And issues varied in the North Country, for example. There was a plan to construct 765 kV lines from Canada to wheel power from Canadian sources uh, into New York. And the farm community, farmers in the North Country, by and large, were very opposed to this. And at some cost to them, because farming, particularly in the North Country, isn't necessarily, wasn't at that time flourishing. So the fact that there would be some monetary uh, recompense for their building, allowing these power lines to be built on their land was a significant factor. But the other side of that was that there was a lot of scientific questioning of the impact of these lines on herds of cattle. What the potential of shedding radioactive material, basically, uh, high, high energy utilization would impact dairy cows. So the North Country, that was their principal concern at that time. Other places around the state were very, very active in rate campaigns and working with organizations of low-income folks to address this question put it before the Public Service Commission, really challenge the investor-owned utilities on their rates of profit. In, as I mentioned, in the Rochester area, there was very significant campaign to prevent the construction of the nuclear power plant, and that was one. There is no sterling nuclear power plant in this day and age. So generally, Chapters would work on all of these issues, but with varying intensity. And we did a lot of learning from each other. We had a lot of shared knowledge along the way, which was inspiring. Congratulations on that victory with the nuclear plant. That's, that's amazing. And as far as you know, the statewide structure goes, you also were a formal C3 with staff supporting each individual chapter, right? Yes. After a period of time, it became clear that we had to move from kind of an informal network and organization, very adept at communicating and, and working with each other to more formalized structures. So funding was sought 
specifically organizers were hired in each of the regions. I took on the role of being director of the statewide organization and spent a lot of time getting to, to visit and, and meet with folks and help, help build the organization statewide. And we had a board which was representative of all of the regions and principal organizations. And also during that time, we built a parallel organization called the Labor Action Coalition with the thinking that while objectives could be similar, there were specific needs that labor folks had with the whole coming together of environmental issues and labor issues particularly that needed a special kind of in-depth examination and work and leadership. So that was a fascinating and uh, fruitful kind of collaboration, I think. I'm actually really glad that you brought that up, Denise, the relationship with labor, because that's definitely something that we want to dive into deeper further on in the conversation. But before jumping into, you know, organizing with labor, I'd also like to talk a bit more about how PPC organized community involvement. We've already started talking about that a little bit, but one thing I'd like to focus on now is that one tool you all developed was an organizer's pamphlet. Can you tell us more about how that came about and how it helped you organize? Yeah, we, we actually put together an organizer's manual on, on the utilities and it was three or four inches thick. Now, remember this was in the days before, <laughs> obviously the internet and the manual was mimeographed. <laughs> originally in certain in certain early editions and and I say that only because oh my gosh how uh, how things change over time but the manual itself was something that could be distributed to activists in different locations and would be an important guide not only to background research on the investor-owned utilities but an organizer's how-to. Um, there's a lot of kind of basic articles and examples and samples of things so that it would be a resource guide that was portable and very usable. We also produced very specifically for the Public Power Campaign, a little piece called Questions and Answers on Public Power. And it was really an essential tool in being able to, when we would do initial meetings with folks and particularly because it's a big state, there are huge regional differences, there were differing levels of development in terms of organizations on the ground who are already doing this work. So things like the Q&A on public power was something that we could leave with people for their further exploration and 
this concept of taking over your utility and building your own model of how democratically controlled resources is like a huge light bulb that goes off in some people's brains when they start hearing about it. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's an opportunity to, to dream big and find a roadmap to get from where we are to this entity that can dramatically change people's lives. So pieces of information and a network to sustain folks became very important in those days and today. Yes, definitely today. I know that we are very much looking forward to consulting some of those resources that you mentioned for our Red Campaign currently. In addition to the pamphlet, your local chapters also collaborated with other community organizations with membership bases. What were some of the organizations you worked with and how? We really sought to, to build this out. So part of our funding was actually from the Federal Anti-Poverty Agency. And that was why there was, they were interested, believe it or not, it was a time when there were people in government who were interested in trying to support changing lives for low-income and working-class folks. So their particular point of interest was how we were going to tackle the rate structure and make a certain level of consumption affordable for low-income people. So senior citizens were a natural base of, of our targeting. There were, in many cities around the state, very strong community organizations that were multi-issue, but who were interested in hearing what we had to say and what we were offering and working collaboratively. Student groups were fired up and excited about the idea of hmm, democratic control. That sounds, that sounds great. Let's, let's get on that wagon. There were activist organizations within a variety of religious groups who saw this as an ethical and important kind of vision that aligned with their particular values. So it really spread across the board and it was an objective actually to try to build a multiracial organization composed of different voices in different places. Awesome. Yes, we are similarly learning the importance of building a diverse coalition here in Rochester. What were some of the organizations uh, specific to Rochester that were very instrumental partners for the Genesee Valley People's Power Coalition chapter? The neighborhood organizations, particularly uh, Group 14621, was very instrumental in in the work of PPC. The Office of Human Development of the Catholic Diocese did a lot of collaborative work. I would say that the Machinist Union also, as well as the UAW, were interested and 
quite involved in the work of the Genesee Valley People's Power Coalition, which was what the Rochester branch was called. The machinist folks looked at the dams along the Genesee and think that's when, when their light bulb particularly went off. So it was a great collaboration. Certainly sounds like it. And then Metro Justice, or rather its predecessor organization, Metro Acts, is also involved, right? Metro Act was foundationally involved, actually. Metro Act did important work like housing our organizer. And the kind of support extended to projects like Xerox at the time had a sabbatical program where people would be freed up to spend a year working in different community projects. And Art North, a very committed Metro Act member and Xerox employee, took a year's leave and worked on PPC issues along with our principal organizer, Fran Weisberg. Awesome. As being part of an organization that used to be involved in this back with the People's Power Coalition, it's really cool to you know revisit that and revitalize the involvement that Metro Justice used to have in public power movements. Intervening in rate cases was also a key way in which you engaged the public for public power. Could you explain what a rate case is and further elaborate on the connection between rate cases and the case for public power? Sure. The Public Service Commission regulates how the investor-owned utilities can adjust their rates. So there are hearings, public hearings, that are held prior to, well, prior to the Public Service Commission making a decision about whether the utility has adequate grounds for uh, obtaining a rate increase. And this became a no-brainer that citizens groups needed to have a voice and needed to have a role in, for one thing, just even understanding this complicated kind of governmental bureaucracy and how to have an impact in being able to speak up for their own needs, their own interests, and their own concerns. So we actually would do trainings about how to do the research ahead of time, how to mobilize for attendance at public hearings, how to organize testimony before the Public Service Commission, and how to monitor and follow up on what those decisions were and make sure that the media understood what all of this was about. In other words, to not be helpless or not be voiceless in the face of this continuing drive for profit for the IOUs. How does that then build a case for public utilities? in the long term? Well, the investor-owned utilities were, at the time, the largest source of investment capital in the United States. So their principal objective 
was maximizing their profit. And who pays for all of that? Consumers. So utilizing and helping folks understand how the investor-owned utilities made money off of them was an important kind of educational ground base building step. So once people understand, hmm, we're not only getting our gas and electric service from the IOU, they're making tremendous profits off of what we're paying raises then the opportunity to talk to folks, well, how can we address this? What could be done differently? What kind of model of how we can build and envision a future without that injustice and oppression, if you will, became a whole way to talk to folks about democratic control. Thank you for diving into that deeper, Denise. It's especially relevant now because right before, you know, the COVID pandemic hit, we were still actually in the midst of a rate case with RG&E in which they were yet again raising rates on ratepayers in Rochester and still actually proposing to use those rates to expand on gas infrastructure. Not only were we going to be continued to be exploited by these, you know, egregiously high rates for what should be a basic human right, they were also going to use our money to damage our futures in the long term. Yeah, this this story goes on, doesn't it? It sure does. And that's why we're fighting back today as well. We are now going to take a short break before hearing more from today's guest, Denise Young. We hope you enjoy a bit of Bob Marley's Get Up, Stand Up, Until Then. So Denise, you've told us about the success that you had um, with the No Nukes campaign, organizing against the construction of nuclear power plants. How did you frame that fight to connect it to the goals of the PPC? And how did efforts to halt the construction of nuclear power plants build the PPC? There was so much attention being focused on how to utilize and think about nuclear power at that point. There were fightback campaigns around the country on construction of new nuclear power plants. One of the key arguments that had a lot of people really concerned was the issue of storage. And West Valley, south of Buffalo, was being put forward as a location to store the waste from nuclear power plants, the threat of waste storage 
and its handling from a health and safety standpoint can't be overestimated. Again, the chance to dig down deeper and help folks understand the pros and cons of this issue and what it would mean in our communities because nobody was getting away from this without some level of exposure. We were looking at the construction of a new plant here on Lake Ontario, storage questions in another part of the state, the offset from the 765 lines in the North Country, Long Island. The aging of plants was an issue that was coming into people's consciousness. In addition to that, there were questions about what happens to the workers in this industry, something that we didn't want to avoid or step around in any respect. And that opens up a way to begin to talk with workers in those industries about alternatives. And today, actually, there's so much more information and awareness about the role that the green economy can contribute in the economic sphere. But this was a really big problem back in the 70s and early 80s. Workers were really concerned about losing their jobs by switching to an environmentally sound economy and source of delivery of energy systems. Yeah, and I think that that is definitely something that's still a huge part of our campaign today and a challenge that we face. Can you talk a little bit more about those conversations with communities that, that had the workers and things that you found successful in terms of talking with labor about the potential loss of jobs or switching of jobs? Well, we wanted to work with people who expressed a level of interest and wanted to similarly work on these questions. So that's why the building of the Labor Action Coalition was really important because it kind of drew out folks in a variety of leadership spots around the state who had a level of consciousness and interest in this to begin with. That's how PPC found the machinists and UAW in a variety of locations around the state. We would go to union meetings and talk about what the vision of PPC was, the kind of work we were doing, and ask for their support for the platform of PPC and for them to tell us what their needs were in this respect and how we could address some of the concerns that they anticipated with broader ranks of members or with other unions. And that was the point that we started from. I think that the concept of just transition was definitely there. There is an understanding that a conversion to an alternative form of energy will not harm the workers or the communities where that transition is being made. But there has to be a way to address the concerns and the livelihood of those working people. 
Great. Yeah. And that is definitely a, a conversation that we continue to have in the current campaign. To pivot a little bit to something we haven't talked about yet, in Rochester specifically, there was a mayoral race that was a centerpiece of our local strategy. Can you tell us some more about that? This was a, um, a very important part of PPC's identity in the Rochester area at a certain stage. A city councilman, John Erb, was exposed to the ideas about public power. Again, I think through the community organization 14621. And John ran as a people's candidate, if you will. He was a Democrat, entered a primary with the mayor at the time, another Democrat, Tom Ryan. And creating a municipal power district was really one of the centerpieces of John's campaign. John brought this issue up in debates all around the community and helped publicize it in that respect. We came really, really close to John being elected mayor. In fact, one of the campaign managers of Tom Ryan said, if the Herb campaign had had three more days, Ryan would have been defeated. Who knows if that's true, but it's an interesting speculation. But it speaks to the kind of growing momentum. And I, I think we can't underestimate sometimes. It takes a while for some of these ideas to really sink in and develop. And we have to have the patience as organizers to figure out when it's time to help fan the embers so that the power and excitement of these ideas can really grow. Absolutely. Being a statewide organization, you often interacted with very different communities with a range of concerns. And something you've mentioned earlier in the conversation um, were the concerns of the farm workers in the Hudson Valley toward the 765 KV lines. Can you elaborate a little bit on that and how the coalition built some support among farmers? You're raising an important point about the significance of rural New Yorkers and how often we don't have opportunities to build strong alliances or organizations of urban and rural folks. Issues cut differently, they're viewed differently, constituencies are different. PPC actually was a way that we could build that alliance. We had folks who were very active from Fairhaven up on Lake Ontario in a very small community. There were pockets of places all around the state in rural settings that were excited to join an organization that was working against the construction of nukes that was working towards lowering their energy, gas and electric bills. And again, holding out this vision of democratically controlled public power was really captures people's imagination and it moves things in a way that a lot of other work doesn't. It was exciting. 
That's amazing to hear and something I think, yeah, we definitely need to continue to be attentive to in our work is the different angles that you can come at this work from and making sure that you're involving all, all New Yorkers in that. How long did the PPC organize and what eventually caused the coalition to stop organizing? Well, there are different phases to this. So PPC itself was probably actively organizing for about three and a half years. What happened eventually was that funding was very difficult to obtain and continue. Since we had been funded largely by the Office of Equal Opportunity, OEO, of the government and from foundation funding, things shift and change. And we were not able to sustain funding to keep a statewide organization going. People continued for a period of time to work on those issues in their own communities after the statewide organization unraveled. But as is the way of a lot of community organizing, things shift, issues change, movements peak and fall. So that's why for me personally, it's just really exciting to see the work that you're doing now and to really see a kind of line of continuity in a certain way. It's cool. Yeah, it's equally exciting for us to to hear about the work that you did and, and build upon it. So looking back on the PPC decades later, what were the biggest obstacles or setbacks um, that the People's Power Coalition faced? And what do you think we should learn from these obstacles for our efforts now? Well, I think that this is both the good news and the bad news. I mean, one of the one of the important visions of PPC was to have a statewide organization because we felt that some of these issues really were best approached from a statewide level. That also is the problematic end of this because it takes a tremendous amount of people power and skill and money and commitment to sustain an organizational vision of that kind. I think that a lot of important lessons were learned. When I think of the principal activists involved in this movement of that time, we all went on to do other progressive and left-oriented work as organizers uh, and as leaders of organizations. There's no way to underestimate the kind of significance that working side by side in activist organizations can build the maturity and skills of young organizers. And that's what we all were. And we came into interaction with people who came from campaigns from the 30s, for example. Some of the folks that we worked with in the Labor Action Coalition were veterans of labor struggles inside the labor movement itself, 
there's no way to replicate that experience as a young organizer. So that I think was one of the amazing and richest parts of that experience. The understanding that raising money and continuing to fund organizations is a political act in and of itself is an important lesson that we all took away from that experience, I think. How we sustain ourselves financially without that kind of cash infusion um, is a challenge, and it's a challenge we face today. Indeed. I was going to ask also what the greatest successes and lasting impacts of the PPC that we could learn from. And it sounds like relationships were one of those things, but were there any others that you wanted to mention? Yeah, I think that uh, we had a direct impact on certain policies that ended up being changed in terms of just things like the shut off policy, a general understanding by elements of state government that concepts like lifeline rating are important to consider. And hopefully today's work can make that an actuality. There's no way to also overlook the fact that there are a couple of nuclear power plants that are not in existence today due to the work of PPC members. I think it was a real opportunity for folks of different generations and different communities and different locations to have a platform that took very concrete issues like lowering utility rates up to a vision of rebuilding and constructing public power districts as a representation of what democratic control in our lives could really look like. And it's pretty hard to beat that. Yeah, and I think something you've mentioned earlier too that's that we find so important today is the, the educational component and just people understanding their energy bill and kind of how the system currently works. So having a whole generation who's educated on, on what the current system looks like is a huge success in itself. All right, Denise, we've come to that moment. One trait so many of us love about you is that you have a poem for every moment. Would you be willing to read the poem that you've chosen for this moment? I would love to do that. <laughs> I'm going to be reading a poem by David White. It's called Everything is Waiting for You. And it kind of speaks to me about what we've been talking about as well as this particular moment that many of us, all of us, are finding in the various quarantine and isolating circumstances that we're in. So everything is waiting for you. Your great mistake is to act the drama as if you were alone. As if life were a progressive and cunning crime 
with no witness to the tiny hidden transgression. To feel abandoned is to deny the intimacy of your surroundings. Surely even you at times have felt the grand array, the swelling presence and the chorus crowding out your solo voice. You must note the way the soap dish enables you or the window latch grants you freedom. Alertness is the hidden discipline of familiarity. The stairs are your mentor of things to come. The doors have always been there to frighten you and invite you. And the tiny speaker in the phone is your dream ladder to divinity. Put down the weight of your aloneness and ease into the conversation. The kettle is singing even as it pours you a drink. The cooking pots have left their arrogant aloofness and seen the good in you at last. All the birds and creatures of the world are unutterably themselves. Everything is waiting for you. Thank you, Denise, for those words and for joining us today. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's our show for today. We'd love to hear from you between now and our next episode. You can send comments and questions to us on our Twitter, at MetroJustice, adding the hashtag RockPublicPowerHour, or email us at RockPublicPowerHour at MetroJustice.org. We look forward to answering your questions on our next show. Cheers! Cheers!